In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. As human beings, we have an instinct to survive. Our ability to establish connections with others has led to the formation of groups, then tribes, and now a modern civilization. We take care of each other. Well, most of us do. On the spectrum of emotions, we have empaths on one end. On the other end, we have those who lack the ability to feel. In fact, they violate the rights of others without remorse. On today's podcast, we discuss sociopathy. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Good morning, Kelly, Roger. Good morning, morning, Sean. Yeah, this is going to be a topic that I think is going to drive Roger insane because a lot of my experience and knowledge comes from pop culture and movies, but I'm going to do my best to try and keep it in line. There, um, there was one interesting statistic that I did see that I wanted to pull out because I think it's interesting that when it comes to this diagnosis for most men, 95% of the diagnosis has come from ex-girlfriends. So <laughs> care to comment on that. <laughs> Wait, that you just you were working all night on that one. <laughs> I was I was trying to find some joke to start it off. But what's our topic today, Raj? Why don't we go into it? So today's topic is on psychopathy. Um, there's an amazing book called the The Psychopath Next Door. Myself and Kelly we read this book. Sean has not, and so that's why we have some concerns <laughs> yeah. that he's going to really take us in a direction like it's a roller Hold coaster. Hold on, ride I watched gonna... American Psycho. I saw a bunch of movies. I'm in good shape for this. We're going to use his uh, naive nature to really <laughs> forward this conversation today. Yeah, yeah so. I think you guys went down a wormhole, and now you're thinking that the whole world is full of people that are psychopaths. So wait, until, psychopaths. wait until you give him the test. Yeah. <laughs> The dangerously naive test, <laughs> the McFillin da- dangerously naive checklist. <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum, you know, is is this idea of psychopathy? Um, you know, we're going to give credit to this book, this the Psychopath Next Door. By title, that piqued my interest. Mm-hmm. Um, Martha Stout, she's a, a clinical psychologist, Dr. Martha Stout, in uh, private practice, and she served on the faculty in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School for about twenty five years. Uh, she's also uh, the author of the, the Myth of Sanity, which is another really good book. But in today's topic, I think we talk about human nature. Mm-hmm. If you kind of get a sense for a lot of the, the various topics that we've had on this podcast, we begin to take uh, a look into some things of popular culture. And it, it, it's almost as if we're a bit, um, you know, contrarian or, or counter to what the narrative is. And I'm happy to say if you go back into some of our earlier podcasts, especially when we're talking about the pandemic response, you know, history is starting to play out on our side. I remember after one of our original podcasts. Yes, our side. (laughs) (laughs) I I think we were talking about our original, one of our original podcasts. This is like in the midst of the mask mandates and some lockdowns and COVID fear. 
you know, Sean's like, boy, you know, this could play out in a way if new information comes out and a lot of your viewpoints are, are, are proven to, to be wrong, you lose a lot of credibility. Mm-hmm. But really what was, what was our, our viewpoint at that particular time, Kelly and I, I think specifically, is we talked about, um, you know, how these, these, these interventions, whether it's a mask mandate or a vaccine mandate or just a response to general, in general to the, the pandemic, was very dangerous because there were un- unforeseen consequences from the effect of, of masks on, on children being able just to read nonverbals and to develop kids not being in the school. We've talked about the rising rate of prescription drugs, of suicide, of mental health-related problems. But more, more importantly is that the science didn't support some of these interventions, and then we were really concerned about what that meant on our individual rights, our personal freedoms. And we've always been talking about that concern for the, uh, the individual in society and government and industry whose goal is for their own personal power, their own personal gain, financial gain, at the expense of the individual. So whether we're talking about how there was fraud in, critical, in clinical trials for psychiatric drugs, we're talk, you talk about the opiate, the, um, opiate crisis and doctors be writing prescriptions. We talk about the impact of, of big pharma. You know, always have been you know, hesitant because as a clinical psychologist, I'm just a little bit more attentive and attuned to the range of people that walk around uh, amongst us in society. And some of the statistics that are quite frightening is that one in 25 are meet this criteria for what's called psychopathy or in the DSM it's antisocial personality disorder psychopathy or sociopathy yeah the the, the <laughs> distinction between both I think there is none I, I don't know that there is yeah I don't think there is I think you're talking about the same um, constellation of I don't even want to use the word symptoms because you know you're putting everything in terms of a medical condition then but the constellation of personality traits. And so where we have to start this is... But psychopathy sounds so much more evil than sociopathy. Well, actually, let me correct you on the book. The book is actually titled The Sociopath Next Door. What did I say? The Psychopath. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Sociopath, that's okay. Yeah. But that, they're, they're inter, interlaced. They, like are, they are synonymous, but uh, I have heard people describe differences between sociopaths and psychopaths. What have you heard? Um, that psychopaths are the ones that will typically not think twice about hurting or killing you you're talking about like the serial killers the serial killers and, and yeah but are, like there are sociopaths that are not psychopaths they're not going to kill people they see, just, i don't i don't i don't think there's a distinction there isn't yeah clinically i don't think there's a distinction can we clinically describe what a sociopath may be it's, yeah. it's in your, you next to your bed you have your gideon's bible and then you have your dsm so in your <laughs> dsm <laughs> what's the what's the definition or how do they how would, would they describe or how does the dsm describe Sociopathy. I, I do not have the DSM in front of me. Okay. Okay. Instead, let's just have a conversation about those personality traits. And I think the most Im- important one is we talk about human attachment and <clears throat> propensity for emotional connection and experience. I wrote it down. You did. I did. All right. Then why'd you ask me the question? Because I thought <laughs> you came prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I have the 1994 DSM 4 description. And then I wrote down just a quick bullet of the DSM-5 
2013 version because they updated it a little bit. So here's DSM-4, 1994, antisocial personality disorder characterized by a lack of regard for the moral or legal standards in the local culture. There is a market inability to get along with others or abide by societal rules. Now, in DSM-5 2013, it's, I think, essentially the same thing, but I wrote down, violate rights of others without remorse. So I feel like a lot can be like dropped in there. Yeah. And I know how critical you are of the DSM, so I didn't want to put too much in there, but I think it's important to kind of define you know, what the description is. Yeah, I do want to move away from that DSM for many reasons. Yeah, um, I, know, I know, I know. And you said something interesting as we were driving in here. Um, we were we were just talking, and you were talking about things on a spectrum. Yeah. And I think if we can bring in uh, human evolution and um, that that idea of uh, survival of the fittest and how human beings have evolved, there's a, a an outstanding field called uh, like biopsychology, where you use evolutionary theory to understand how human beings have evolved. So the, the question is out there, the laws of natural selection. Mm -hmm. If the laws of natural selection exist, what is the evolutionary benefit of uh, psychopathy or being a sociopath? So let's start trying to define it outside of the, the DSM and let's talk about it in terms of the differences, okay? So the three of us sit, you know, right here. And um, one of the things I, I always identified is I feel strongly for others. Probably why I've always been in the, the social sciences field, education, and of course a psychologist right now, is that I tend to be really acutely aware of other people's emotions and take them on. So it's that feeling of like compassion, empathy, and even love for each other. Now there is an evolutionary benefit to that. And then when you're talking about there's one in 25 or the sociopath next door, most of us have this propensity to develop um, this feeling called guilt. Mm -hmm. And what is the evolutionary benefit of guilt? Well, if you do something wrong to harm somebody else or harm the group, then you can feel this strong experience of guilt that's aversive to prevent you from kind of making that mistake again. And there's an evolutionary benefit to being part of the group your chances of survival increase. So that's that law of natural selection and how do we adapt and how do we evolve? We see it across animal kingdoms. Mm -hmm. You know, in this book, The Sociopath Next Door, they would talk about how gazelles, when being chased by um, a predator, like one might take themselves for the team, right? Like, because they, they're they hunting down one and to, 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 to um, protect the group, they'll kind of, veer off into another direction and, and then take the lions away. How do they decide that? <laughs> it's <laughs> coin, coin flip. It's, it's instinctive. I mean, I think like chimpanzees do the same thing. Like when there's, uh, when there's not enough food, you know, they, sh they'll share it with the group. Humans evolve that yeah, way yeah. too. You share food with, with the group. So the group is really important. And we've talked about that as also a vulnerability that in order to be part of the group, then you're willing to almost suppress any individual thought. So there's danger when uh, the group is being controlled by a sociopath, like a Hitler, for right. example. So you have the mass formation psychosis and you have group think and you have all of those things. Sure, there you go. 
He just slipped that in there. He did. Yeah. The, the politics here. Come on. It's all right. So this idea of emotional attachment is really, really important. Uh, so on one side of the spectrum, we see people who experience love, compassion, empathy, uh, guilt really intensely. And one of the concerns I have, Sean, with the DSM or the modern look, modern viewpoint of mental health disorders is those people tend to be identified as having a mental health condition. They're disordered. They're more likely to be prone to the emotional disorder labeling mm -hmm. and placed on psychiatric drug to numb those experiences. When I think that's uh, evolutionarily adaptive, they tend to be creative people, loving, nurturing. That's not a disorder. Um, and I don't want to talk about it there. But on the other end... Um, so highly empathic people are considered disordered. In the they, DSM. They can be because they're prone to lo lower mood, I gotcha. right? like high guilt, yep. gotcha. um, anx right. anxious, right? Mm -hmm. So then you get, you get those quote unquote labels or diagnosis. But when you look at the sociopath, the only emotions that sociopaths seem to feel genuinely are like the primitive affective reactions that result from immediate pain or pleasure. And they're driven for these short-term successes and like... Uh, drives for like power and control, so sex, finances, um, and they kind of seek out that that rush, and that prim it's a primitive aspect of domination, and when you see that in the drive for financial success or the drive for power, and then of course they have they do have a hard time or could have a hard time adapting to the social norms and the rules of that particular culture. Yeah, so w in reading the book they're talking about these individuals. She uses a term, which I think is pretty cool is called ice people. Mm. And so this idea that there is no ability for them to empathize. There's no, when you say emotions, those really primitive emotions um, and the recklessness and the actions that they take though are very dangerous. And they actually can manipulate individuals into doing those risky situations with them, almost as if they're um, that's how they get the, any kind of a, a feeling Right? Is that is that correct? Yeah, and, and well, when we talk about things being on a spectrum, you know, there's also a spectrum of intelligence, right? And there's also a, a <laughs> Sean's I, over there. I, he's going to try to play the role of like <laughs> like he's a psychopath today. I can't, I'm I can't. not a psychopath. <laughs> he gives those like scary eyes. Is that eyes. a question or a statement? <laughs> so, I've, of course, there's a spectrum of intelligence and other skills. So imagine being the uh, being a sociopath, but being of like highly evolved with intelligence, and so you can pick up on certain cues. So they they can have the the ability to be um, to be able to to learn by observing others, and if you have a strong personality, um, charming almost, you can learn really what other people um, are attracted to and interested in. You just mimic it. Mm -hmm. So in, in our field, it's very widely known that there's no psychological therapy or psychotherapy that like heals or improves the antisocial personality or the, the sociopath. No if, known or no, there, it's known like, like there is no, there's no assistance or help. What, what they do because of the, the lack of caring, mm -hmm. what they do learn is to some can become better criminals. They learn those skills through a psychotherapy about like what it what how can i mimic empathy how can i mimic compassion and they can use that to their advantage to be to to hurt other people i was um 
I didn't read the book that you guys read because, uh, you know, things are get busy and I like to throw an earbud in and listen. I did listen to that uh, one podcast. It was a sociopath kind of sharing her story. Um, I thought it was interesting because the way that she described it was that um, she doesn't have a self and she learned how to mirror what is acceptable in culture in certain moments. And she said it, she feels like she's all day long wearing a mask and based on the situation she's in, she keeps changing her mask. And I, I thought that was a very sad way of understanding it because that feels so empty to me. But I've heard sociopaths describe it as freeing and almost like um, sociopathy for them is like a superpower. Well, it's that the way that I that the way that I look at it is I try to understand it at the emotional level. So when I talk about the that primitive drive, I mean it's the primitive what it what is that primitive drive for human beings? It's it's for procreation, so it's sex and survival. Mm -hmm. And to be able to have power within a group can also provide you um, the opportunities to have more more sex with 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 more people. Mm -hmm. So um, I think everything about them is that that short term instinctual drive for their own personal power. And one of the things, uh, can I share a story here? Mm -hmm. Is this a personal story as a sociopath? No, Sean, it's the personal story of growing up with one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I digress. Sorry, here. Lindsay. We didn't want to bring you into this. <laughs> this is where I was afraid you were going to take us off. Ah, come on. Let's go. Let's bring it back. <laughs> okay. So I do have a lot of questions because I get a lot of questions about um, why did I start on this process of doing a lot of the investigations that I did into psychiatric drugs and the impact? On, uh, on people because it is kind of counter. It's, so, it's such a norm right now that people go into their doctor and they get that prescription. But my first uh, experience in, um, in the field, actually my first job out of college, I worked in a children's psychiatric hospital, ages five to 10. And that is a young group, a vulnerable group. So when you see kids suffering and struggling behaviorally, it almost it tugs at your heartstrings in, in a different way because they're they're still innocent. Mm -hmm. They're still that child. So we what was always challenging for me is on on one end you would see uh, a kid being highly aggressive and out of control. And then, you know, twenty minutes later, they would be like they'd put their head on you and they'd be crying uh, about what just happened. You know, very you know childlike aspects. So you develop obviously really strong caring and connection. And what was appalling to me at that time was the, the treatment of age, kids age five to 10. Most of them came from abusive and neglectful backgrounds, but there was a psychiatrist on staff and I might've said this story on other podcasts that I've been on, but the, the intervention was just to provide multiple psychiatric drugs. And I used to see these kids deteriorate um, emotionally and physically uh, at best, they'd be very lethargic. At other times, they'd develop like side effects and symptoms like tardive dyskinesia, which is a very um, like upsetting, like facial tick that, you know, is uh, like uncomfortable, like they can't control their facial tics. Mm -hmm. Some kids would, you know, be sleeping 16 hours a day, couldn't get out of bed. And the, the psychiatrist on, on staff almost presented 
as if it didn't affect him emotionally at all. Like there was a coldness and there is, and there's a distance to the treatment of these kids where it was just about raising the dosage, lowering the dosage to try to change a presentation. And, you know, I'd see him come in and out of the hospital in his BMW and his nice suits. And I was just so angry at that time because I would be, I would go home, I'd be disturbed by some of the things that I would see, whether it's putting those kids in psych in holds physically or the number of drugs. And I, and I was just really, really concerned with, is this the field of, of mental health and behavioral health? Is this like how we're advancing things for children? I was 21 years old at that time. Obviously now I've advanced myself, but that was the beginning for me. And it, and in medicine, there's this adage of first do no harm. And in mental health, I would, I would see people just doing harm initially. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that's where I started to begin to question, how can you be so cold in your, 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 your treatment. And when I read the book, the, uh, sociopath. sociopath next door, it begins to talk about how this, this personality spectrum or this, uh, you know, these personality traits are in our everyday lives. The te there, there's the sociopath who's the teacher. There's a sociopath who's the doctor. You know, it's not just this, the sociopath who go, who's, uh, you know, a criminal and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're stealing, they're killing. No, they're, they're involved. They, they're involved in our everyday life. And if they're allowed to kind of continue to it could be a high school principal, if they're, if they're allowed to continue to uh, live amongst us in society, um, they can do great harm because as Kelly mentioned, some of them are very bright and can be very charming. So in order to serve their own personal needs, they can be very attuned to being able to control and manipulate others. Okay, so I want to throw out the question of stigma. Someone who has uh, sociopathy, are they born with it? How, how is this brought on? Is it hereditary? Mm. Because it's, I don't think someone all of a sudden is like, oh, I'm a sociopath. How can I leverage this for my benefit? Yeah, so I, I, I think focus, there's this, yeah. <clears throat> focus on that answer, but then I also want to bring up the question of when we look through all of the different things other than emotion, can we actually, can we almost train, can a person be trained through jobs, through experiences to manifest into a sociopath? All right, so it, it's it's this nature versus nurture. Yeah, let's, let's start with that question. Yeah. So I'm just gonna take an excerpt from the, from the book mm -hmm. um, because they, they do address this topic and clearly, clearly, that this is a, a biological construct for many. So um, if you take everything together, um, these studies indicate that sociopathy involves an altered processing of emotional stimuli at the level of the cerebral, cerebral cortex. Emotional processing is really, really important. Our ability to experience compassion love for another is absolutely necessary in order to develop that kind of conscience. Aren't we talking about the development of a conscience? And so the nurture component of this also, which is powerful, can go back to maybe the early days of uh, your relationship with your child. 
that bonding, that attachment. Mm-hmm. So infants are, they rely on the caring and nurturing of their caregivers. So you cry, you're fed, you're, you're changed. And there's a bonding and a closeness that occurs from that, that connection. And obviously it continues to develop over time. So you have to automatically say that there's the possibility if someone has a genetic predisposition, and so maybe the, the genetic predisposition is the low reactivity or emotional reactivity to other humans, if you, can combi- if you combine that with other cultural or environmental aspects like a neglectful parent or an abusive parent, mm-hmm. obviously you're kind of setting the stage for somebody to kind of meet that criteria as a sociopath. But there are plenty of people that um, certainly those conditions didn't occur. So who developed, uh, who became a sociopath, but also grew up in what you know appears to be uh, loving families. So um, where mothers were attentive to the needs of their child and you don't see it in a sibling. So there's obviously there's always kind of this um, like epigenetic kind of aspect. Everything is about genes and how it relates to environment. But if you do not have the ability to be able to experience that emotion, then uh, it seems like the, that you're very vulnerable or those people are vulnerable to developing this condition. The other thing that I want to be able to acknowledge and think about is that concept of the alpha the alpha male, the alpha female, are you guys familiar with this? I think that's thrown around in society. Like people want to, to be able to almost identify that they're, that they're alpha, alpha, like somehow that like they're independently mind minded or, or, you know, have this ability for achievement or to take care of them, their families or to achieve certain things across, across animal kingdoms, you know, you, the alpha, um, can hoard resources, the alpha can be more aggressive. The alpha uh, seems to be more detached from um, everyone in, in the group. They uh, hoard, the alpha male will hoard the females for, for reproduction. So why, are we, why wouldn't that exist in human populations as well, where that's, uh, that sociopathic kind of component? Remember, the lack of emotion and that intense emotion means they don't get highly stimulated in response to actually harming another person. Mm -hmm. And that's why the cultural aspect is they could be driven into um, like the military and be very successful hired killers, right? These things do exist, uh, you know, within our, within our society that there's, they become the warrior class in in some regard, because while others might have uh, a strong moral, um, kind of conflict in response to to murder if you're a, you're a warrior and you're serving the needs of the political class you don't necessarily have that same conflict in fact you might be attracted to it because there's a short-term reward from from hurting somebody or, or murdering somebody that serves that power need so can we go back to the stigma because I, I believe a lot of research is probably done on those that you can get access to. So maybe those that prison prison. Yeah. So if you have incarcerated prisoners and that's what you're using to really define sociopathy and understand the origins of, and what happened, do you then come up with this description 
of a sociopath based on that, where as yes, maybe um, one in 25 are technically a sociopath and they're living amongst us every day, but they're not out to benefit themselves. Mm-hmm. They just have learned to adapt it to our culture. Yeah. And, um, but they just lack that empathy and emotion and mm-hmm. that feeling and that low sense of self, but they're not evil in their intent. I think this is where, oh, you, well, where in, you intent. Well, you and I always, I think this is where we always differ is you have a tendency to assume some type of intent. I, I don't always assume some intent because if I'm, let's say I'm, I'm born with sociopathy and I learn that I have this low emotional reactivity, everything. I, I don't feel the way that others do, but I just want to be accepted. I'll learn to adapt in culture. Yeah, but you're you're acting as if a sociopath has the ability to, to understand what you just said yeah. and that they're going to look in the mirror and say, oh my gosh, I have no emotions, so I'm going to do. That's not what this is. But if is. they comprehend it. Well, can, we'll go back to bi- the biological part of the brain, the, the amygdala. Am I, not, am I correct in stating that? There is There are studies on individuals that are sociopaths that show very low, in fMRI, very uh-huh. low activity there, which is your f- fight or flight response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, they do not. There is no uh, ability for them to comprehend that what an emotion is, or or, or even that they it, don't have. That. If they recognize that they have a certain set of, I don't know, skills or intelligence in a certain area, or maybe they don't have a very high intelligence in a certain area, can they be? Is the benefit for them then to adapt? So I think one of the things we said is there's this. Um, they they get pleasure. Yeah. Right. Which, which that's a basic human, um, animalistic function. Once an individual starts to manipulate other people, for example, maybe makes them smile or laugh. That's where they can be glib and superficial and charming. That gives them something. I don't know what it is, but it gives them a feeling, right? Mm -hmm. That that's, that's the only feeling they, the reward circuits in their brain that are similar to that of like when you have sex are also stimulated. Like when you take advantage of somebody. Like, uh, you know, these, these people who will find out who's a, who just lost their husbands, for example. So they'll like target a a widow and say, and, and, and they'll get pleasure from trying, from stealing from, from a widow, you know, it's so, so I want to get back to your question of intent, because this is a, this is a major difference between you and I, and everyone has different skill sets, right? And everyone's created uniquely and differently. I think you and I agree on many things. I just I have a tendency not to assign intent because I feel like sometimes things go down a path and it's unintended. Well, that certainly happens sometimes. Like no one, when you're talking about intention, it, you're not going to have a hundred percent hit rate. But my skill set, where it's different from yours, is I think I'm really good at deductive reasoning. And I don't know if this is how I was trained as a psychologist or the things, you know, what happens with, with my mind. But can't deductive reasoning lead you down a path of connecting things that aren't connectable? It's possible, <laughs> right? It's possible. But um, when, you're, when you do what I do and you have that attunement to human empathy and the way people think, certain things begin to make sense. Like if you act, if this was to be true, then you would act this way. And... Sean knows me. I can't fix anything. Like something breaks in my home. Like mechanically speaking, I um I have like a, a disability. Mm-hmm. So my mind only works in a certain way. So I know I'm attuned to certain things. So I have been able to learn like like if 
if you're trying to take advantage of somebody in a certain way, your mind would work this way, you would act this way, you would respond this way in different in various situations. If you were, you know, if you were depressed or you're socially anxious, your behavior would look like this. There's all this deductive reasoning, and I tend to pick up on things really quickly. Am I prone to making a quick reaction without all the evidence? Yep, that comes with it. We know about biases. Mm-hmm. But my my skill set is a genuinely good person who really cares would think this and their behavior would look like this. It's almost like a top-down approach. So when something is amiss, like when something's missing there and they don't match, I get this strong feeling. And that strong feeling leads me to investigate. And so I can quickly be able to assume some intention I also, that was just my dissertation research was on attributions. So I do think I have a level of sophistication, talent, and education that Sean just doesn't have. <laughs> now, this is not to put you down. Sean's, uh, Sean's a really good manager of, of, of people, and he's, he's pretty creative. He's a good problem solver. And I think, why, I think what happens is when, it come, when you assign such positive inten- intention to people, you're going to develop... Real, you're going to develop good relationships because you generally just believe in the good of all people. Yes. I'm not saying this is a negative. No, I know, but uh, I'm going to flip that on you. Well, not flip it, but confirm it. Um, you do this deductive reasoning and when something jumps out as not being, you know, doesn't there, fit, it doesn't something's fit. off, but I look at it as like, well, why on earth would that happen? There's a reason why there's a logical explanation why. And then all of a sudden you learn what that fact is and you see, see, that's the reason why that happened. It wasn't like ill intent. It was well. We're we're on a different level because you're talking about in your very small circle with your day to day people in your managing world, you know, with people of a certain culture, yes. with a certain education, yes. with a certain background. Yes. So yes, you're you're right. I work with rape victims. I know. I was a I was a juvenile probation officer, um, in my career after I was in that psychiatric hospital. I have seen it on both ends. I've sat in front of the psychopath with no remorse. Sociopath or psychopath? Sociopath, psychopath, antisocial personality disorder. I sat down after they, you know, I had a kid in front of me who raped a three-month-old. You know, I, um, I had a kid on probation who was convicted of double murder. Um, you know, I, I just see the. I, I saw the person who was would chronically violate all all rules, and I, I could look into their eyes and ask them their questions. On the other end, you know, I've worked, with, I've I've talked to the victims of those people, and when you treat PTSD trauma, and often what you're doing is you are working with the victims of the sociopath, right? And you can see where they were groomed. You can see the things they did and the things that they said. So I've certainly been exposed to that side, Sean, when you have not. Yep. And then the other things I, when I talk about, I want us to be careful of the medical establishment, the pharmaceutical industry and doctors, because those people exist in those roles because they're also move people towards it. They're powerful positions in society. When, when I see the teen in front of me who's getting worse on psychiatric drugs and the doctor doesn't do anything or doesn't even seem to care, that affects me, right? No, what's interesting about doctors, because I was looking into careers that sociopaths have a higher likelihood of pursuing. Doctors were actually towards the empath side, but no, what's interesting? Surgeons. Surgeons are to the other side, right? Because they- Low reactivity of emotions. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So 
when we that's an interesting question because not at, you're right not everyone's going to take what they experience and use it for ill intent yes um some people will use it to you can gain you know you also gain power without harming people yep that's really important so you can be an outstanding physician and not really care if the person lives or dies but you care about your standing and you care about the money you make or you c- compare you care about the number of sexual partners that you have. Mm. And so when we when we think about this, it's it's really important we don't put them in the categories. We do think about this in terms of a of a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, should we go over this hair psych, uh, psychopathy checklist revised the PCLR? Just sure, so our, yeah. our listening audience knows like these are this is a Let checklist. Me give, uh, like a, a maybe just a brief history. Do you know anything about the hair? So he was um for for decades, 60, 50s, 60s, a, a lot of experimentations were done around the world, and you can look them up. The Canadian one was the big one with psychopaths, and that's the one that got people like, I believe, Jack Abbott, Norman Mailer, all these individuals, Hollywood types like Sean Connery, believe it or not, were involved with some of these experiments because what they were finding were there were um, this sociopath, this psych, psych, psychopath was kind of emerging from the shadows of the world, and it was, uncur- it was uncurable. Right. So bad things were happening. Police were finding these individuals. And the only way that they could um, basically house them was to put them in jail. Of course, you have empathic people who want to try to help them. And so there were a lot of studies in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Bob Hare comes out with this kind of checklist. Uh, Overall, um, they did not want to put, by the way, I I know you don't like bringing up the DSM. They did not want to put psych the actual diagnosis of psychopathy in there simply because one of the, uh, I believe it, remember when you said there was one female on the board, um, she brought it up. She said that you cannot judge empathy. That was the big thing. In other words, there was no way to actually scale it. And so she was, she refused to put psychopathy into, into that. But yeah, so he comes up with a checklist and then travels around the world. And um, people were like, well, at least we, we can now diagnose individuals with, with that. So the checklist was used for diagnosis. The checklist was used for experimentation and to recruit individuals into experiments, particularly um, around the world. Then they experiment with drugs, LSD. Is this, uh, is this test online? Can it be found? That's what I was asking. It, it, I did find it. You did find it. Okay. Yeah, it, it's a, a checklist. It, there's 20 of them. So I'll just go down it real quick. Is it a yes, no, or is it a scale? It's a scale from zero to <clears throat> two. So zero, definitely not present. One, somewhat present. Two, definitely present. So obviously, you know, in my field, these things are always concerning because there's subjectivity to this. But anyway, let's go down. Let's just go down the 20. So as the question's being asked, is it the individual responding to the question no, or is the it, doctor it, assigning it? The doctor, doctor assigns, assigns it. it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. So number one. So he's going to do this with you and he's going to assign a number to you. I'm going to do it for, um, as you read through these, I'm just going to take score <laughs> you against You guys Roger. should do it for each other. <laughs> well, num- number one, glibness, superficial charm. For Sean, that's a two. Definitely <laughs> present. <laughs> I'll agree with that. <laughs> Number two, egocentricity, grandiose sense of self-worth. Get him back. <laughs> that's definitely Roger. There you go. Roger, you're at a three right now. <laughs> okay. Number three, proneness to boredom, low frustration tolerance. Kelly, that's definitely a two for you. Jeez. <laughs> Number four, pathological lying and deception. That's Sean coming on here to try to play that role. Mm. He's not really dangerously naive. It's the role he plays. Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) 
Number five, um, cunning and lack of sincerity. I can't apply this to any one of us here. Um, number six, lack of remorse or guilt. Number seven, um, this is Sean, lack of affect and emotional depth. Sorry, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> number eight, callous, lack of empathy. That's not Sean. No, no. I'm very empathic. Number nine is interesting. Um, a parasitic lifestyle. Like sucking off those of others. Ooh. You know, that's that's interesting. That's me because I, yeah, you know, I came here to work with Roger. So. That doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have resources and that you're trying to live off of others. That could just mean that you're using others for even thoughts and things like that, right? Could be, but yeah. they're also in this book, it talks about the person who's not really interested in working. Right. So they, oh, they yeah, use yeah. their skill just to find a partner gotcha. who can take care of them. Um, short-tempered, poor behavioral controls. That's a two for you, Raj. <laughs> Not fair, Sean. <laughs> History of uh, promiscuous sexual relations. No. So, you know, to think about that, we haven't talked about that. That's an interesting uh, component because if for monogamy, right? Um, for monogamy to exist in, in society, one of the things that would, um, because everyone has a biological drive to procreate. So for you to like stay with one partner, you wouldn't want to hurt them. So like, even if you had a drive to have sex with somebody else, one of the things that would stop you from doing that was your, um, your morality, right? Your conscience. You wouldn't want to hurt your partner or maybe your family, your children or whatever. So you could be you know, those people don't care about that. So they're prone to a lot of different partners. Um, and they, they're obviously, you know, also prone to other things like acting outside the boundaries, like having sex with a teenager. Like you don't have to be a pedophile to have sex with a teenager because a male or a female could be developed post, uh, post puberty. Um, but the rules don't apply to you, right? You don't care about the effect of that person. Right. And that's why we have to be, you know, really concerned about the sociopath in society because, again, they do harm because of the lack of a conscience. There's no moral code. We live by a moral code, and you couldn't handle the. You couldn't if you break if you work outside that moral code. The feelings of guilt are so intense. You'd have a hard time living. With well, it. You said conscience before you move on with the checklist. Could you def is a conscience basically? Could we define it as like? Like an emotional, you have an emotional attachment to people and yeah, right or wrong, you know, right or wrong. It's, and, it's Jiminy Cricket to Pinocchio. What? what? Here's the, the roller coaster. Here, okay. Okay. What are you talking about? You watch about? Pinocchio, the Disney cartoon. Jiminy Cricket plays the role of conscious for Pinocchio because he was a toy. Oh. So it become a boy, didn't have a conscious. Jiminy Cricket was the voice. Is there, boy. It, yeah. <laughs> is, there, is there a thing for terrible metaphors on there? And can we grade him as a five? I, uh, All right. I would do this with my, my nephew. <laughs> I think I'll be validated by this. There's going to be someone who listens to this who really understands. Uh, I really liked your Pinocchio story. Sean, your nose is growing. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, I'm sorry they picked on you about your Pinocchio story. I got it. I just want you to email me. Pinocchio in, in Shrek. That's some, those are some of the most funny scenes yes. in the movie Shrek with Pinocchio. <laughs> yep. How about the gingerbread man? <laughs> you have potential. You have potential. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> All right, let's go back to your questions. Uh, so where were we? History of promiscuous sexual relations. So I just kind of talked about that. History yep. of early behavior problems. Ooh. This is where, Sean, I, I would be concerned for myself. I had a hard time in those classrooms, nice. obviously. I, w I told my story in a previous podcast. It's a two for you. Dr. Chatterbox. <laughs> Dr. Chatterbox. <laughs> uh, 
Lack of realistic long-term plans. Oh, I'll put one for you. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm, as I'm as clear as my long-term plans as anyone in this room, I think. I'm trying to manifest it for the both of you. <laughs> Somewhat. Uh, impulsivity. Oh, that's a two for you. <laughs> uh, 15, irresponsible behavior. Mm, ir irresponsible. Uh, number 16, frequent marital relationships. No. I'm, I'm on only one. Yep. We're all on one. Um, history of juvenile delinquency. That's a negative. You weren't really a delinquent, though. Oh, do you want to tell some of your story, Sean? Oh, you no. and your underage drinking? That's not delinquency. That's just having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know what this actually means. Revocation of conditional release. Revocation of conditional release. We'll look it up. Go yeah, we'll look it up. Okay. Next one. Um, this is this is a big one. This is what I this is what I see when I'm doing interviews, clinical interviews, and sometimes I'm determining whether someone could benefit from therapy or maybe one of the programs that we have. Failure to accept responsibility for own actions. This really, really stands out to me. Those who are part of this spectrum, even when they've done great harm to other people can really struggle to accept any responsibility for that. My concern here with this, as this being a checklist, is we talked about the spectrum here of intelligence as well. Somebody who's really, really intelligent is going to learn that accepting responsibility for one's actions is culturally acceptable and uh, you know, ha lets others kind of lower their guard down for you as a psychopath. So like if you come out here and you and you hurt people and you don't accept any responsibility for it, you know, that that that's a lot of red flags for us and we distance ourselves mm. from you. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe the the charming and intelligent psychopath would accept responsibility. <laughs> Sean's doing his look over there. <laughs> would, would, would accept responsibility in order to get you to lower your guard down. Right. That's why it's kind of like a mind game here. Um, and then the last one, many types of uh, offense. So obviously getting caught. Okay, and that goes back to the revocation. That that means that you're when you're released or on bail or you did like something parole. you are paroled, mm -hmm. you're going to do it again. Yeah. 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 Repeat offenders. So what did he score, Sean? Um, um what's wait, let's the uh, what point oh, are I you? Think it, I think it's third twenty five, <laughs> right? Isn't at, it? At what point are we a so sociopath? Twenty five over twenty five. If you embarrass me on this podcast, Sean, <laughs> I will end you. I'm sorry. <laughs> ah, it came out. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, so we're, we're, we're joking here. You know, this tends to be, these are si serious behaviors. Uh, that I'll say you're, under, you're under a 10 probably. Yeah. So when you're, we transition, you're from, on a 10 to 15, right? <laughs> we will transition from joking, uh, to joking because the more serious nature of this, and I have had, um, friends, particularly, um, women, female friends in the past that have had been in relationships with, they believe to be like narcissists, which I know is a bit different, but, um, talking about how they were exploited had to go through therapy had to you know ruin ruin their lives talk a little bit about can we kind of go through a process of okay let's do relationships let's talk yeah. about it uh, particularly with women and meeting a sociopath what can they expect how do they tell uh, what what is your advice to them besides get the hell out kelly you're smart because this is a really dangerous but interesting kind of dialogue here um, because it almost like it, it communicates to our listener as if you know, we can be able to point them out 
and we can protect ourselves from it. But some things, um, some things that I think people should probably be aware of, right? Um, that love bombing early in a relationship, you know what love bombing is? You know, you're, it's like a, it's intense. The constant attention mm. to how amazing you are as a person, um, in all likelihood, you know, is about something that was learned in order to get you to feel attracted to that person, right? So the sociopath will learn that some people really love attention, especially physical attention or attention to appearance. So in a, in a culture or society where there's so much attention to physical appearance for young women, young women, be careful of the, of the man who is providing you so much attention for that. So one, you're probably demonstrating, whether it's through your social media or through subtle reactions, that um, attention to your physical appearance is really flattering to you. So they'll pick that up and they'll, they'll love bomb you to that and give you that attention in order to get the things that they need. Now, conversely, the individual who doesn't have those psychopathic tendencies um, are going to be a little bit to a little attuned to not wanting to um, to get you attached too quickly because they're not sure about you and they might hurt you and they don't want to hurt you. So they allow a relationship to grow naturally to develop. It develops naturally. You're not the most amazing person in the world after 30 days. Do you understand? Because they don't know you. You're the most amazing person in the world after 30 years because of, of things that have developed between the two of you and that that mutual connection and being there for each other that's what makes you amazing you don't you don't you're not amazing because they see you in this restricted social setting where at your best and you look really good in that outfit let me share a story an example um more towards the other side uh, i heard it on uh either a podcast or news it was a story about a girl in new york who had gone out on a date and had the most incredible date with this person. And they went out two, three, maybe four times and the relationship was moving fast. And all of a sudden he ghosted her completely. Like he had um, made a Spotify playlist of all the songs that he was inspired by her from. And she felt like this relationship was it. And then he went completely away and she shared it on social media and all these other women in New York started saying, like, I got a Spotify playlist from this guy. He did the same thing to me. And they're trying to make the connection whether or not this individual is the same person. But that's this guy, I think, learned how to manipulate to yeah. get what he wanted and then move on. There's a Netflix show right now, I think, called The Tinder Swindler, which oh, really? is a really strange name, wow. but it's similar. Yeah. So this is probably one of the more challenging things for me as a therapist because I see this so frequently, right? So I'm... Um, uh, you know, I'm treating somebody who might be emotionally vulnerable. Uh, they might even have a background where there was abuse. And if you're emotionally vulnerable and then somebody comes in, into your life and lifts you up with all that attention, I can see the, the, uh, the shift in that person's affect, mood, and behavior. So they might be depressed or real low mood or struggling. And then somebody comes into their life and lifts them up right? And they lift them up with constant attention and positive attention. And the reaction and response to my, my client in that particular situation is, it's a visceral strong reaction. 
And there are so many red flags that are brought into my, my therapy session because in, in one end, you want to be able to protect victims from this type of person. But on the other end, you know, you realize that there's this short-term psychological benefit of lifted up mood and change in behavior. So I'm always walking this kind of line here. It's like, it feels like I'm on a, on a tightrope of trying to get this person to be careful because I know how this could play out down the line. Because in the first, you know, in the first couple months, you know, they feel like they're in love because it's that high. And then you, and there's almost enough, they almost feel offended when I try to bring up the other side or, or, or talking about what, what love is. Love, you know, because I do that deductive reasoning and then I realize like, well, that's, that's not really love. You might be serving something for that individual. And what you're serving for that individual could be, you know, maybe you're just arm candy or you're just a sexual conquest right now. You're, or you're serving some other purpose. In the deductive reasoning, I know health, in healthy relationships, it doesn't usually play out that way. And you just wonder if they're, you know, if they're vulnerable to that. There's an, there's an interesting portion of the book, Kelly, you might have read this one, The 13 Rules for Dealing with Sociopaths mm, yeah, yeah. in Everyday Life. That was good. Yeah. Um, it'd probably be worth kind of going over yeah, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. What? Uh, the first rule um, involves the bitter pill of accepting that, um, that some people literally have no conscience. And, that, and this is where Sean's become woke as he came into this part of the country. I think Sean... And he and he'd been exposed to the to this podcast and the things we've talked about. It's almost like his his psychological makeup couldn't accept that there are people out there who have no conscience. Like he couldn't handle it, so he has to always apply positive intention to most everything that was done. Because if you begin, I don't want to lose that. I want to keep that. Though. You know, you want to lose it. No, nah, I don't. <laughs> it'll it'll change when you have to protect another life, yeah. right? When you have when you have a, a child, you can't go out into the world and expect that everyone's intentions around you or your family are, are, are positive. You have to accept that. And you don't have to go to the other extreme and think that every intention yeah, is negative. I think that's where your gut comes in though, right? I mean, you could pick up on some of those things when people are... Did they, we pick up on the last two years, Sean? Sean, you, did, you couldn't <laughs> trust your gut in that situation. Don't talk for me. All right. <laughs> so it's the bitter pill of accepting that some people literally have no conscience. Mm -hmm. And that, are there consequences to that? Yes. Do you feel maybe a little bit more guarded in, in life? Is there a little lack of trust? You know, if people, that exists. But trust should be, should be earned. And I, I do think we have to try to trust our gut and understand things. Like, you know, like the difference between going to a doctor, the one who really spends a lot of time with you and asks all these questions and seems to really care, Versus the one that, you know, sees you really quickly and moves on, mm -hmm. you know, like we can pick up on these things. We can pick up on the ones who really care in certain professions and the ones that don't. And you see that more in my, my profession, I think, than others. Number two, uh, in, a, in a contest between your instincts and what is implied by the role a person has taken on educator, doctor, leader, animal lover, humanist, parent, go with your instincts. So that's, that's like, the gut. that's the gut, right? Um, if you have that feeling, I don't know about this person, you know, I'm not really sure, go with it. Because mm -hmm. there seems to be something at a instinctual level mm -hmm. that brings attention. And that's probably that deductive reasoning, right? That's happening really, really fast. Be careful of that person. Trust your gut. Keep your guard up. When uh, Number three, when considering a, a new relationship of any kind, practice the rule of threes regarding the claims and promises a person makes and the responsibility he or she has. Make the rule of threes your personal policy. One lie, 
One broken promise or a single neglected responsibility may be an, a misunderstanding, right? Mm-hmm. Two, maybe a serious mistake. But three, three lies says you're dealing with a liar. Mm-hmm. You know, and deceit is the linchpin of consciousness behavior. Cut your losses and get the hell out. Mm. Okay, Do, don't give your money, your work, your secrets, your affection to a three timer. You know, so this is back where where Sean makes some really good points. You know, if you're going to assign positive attention, human beings are prone to making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, human beings are sometimes prone to error in reason and judgment and other things, but there are patterns, and be aware of the patterns. Uh, number four, and this is our podcast, okay? Number four, always question authority. Always. You question authority. <laughs> well, we're looking at, he's looking at you. <laughs> that's, our, that's our role and our responsibility to protect the vulnerable. It's our role. It's our responsibility in a free society. You have a position of power or authority. That does not give you some absolute right over the decisions of other people okay we whether you're a, you're in a classroom and your teacher's your authority figure or it's your doctor or it's your politician question that person because how they respond is information we can we can get a lot of information through the deductive reasoning this podcast is going to be questioning all authorities i can't wait till we get some of the guests on um, because that's what this podcast is good at. We're good at bringing up these questions. Mm-hmm. You know, we're good at putting people on the spot. And this is what Joe Rogan is great at. You know, Joe Rogan is great at asking questions and our media is not, mm-hmm. you know, our media is not re- the people that we have to rely on in a democracy. Now, since they're bought and sold by industries, it's going to be podcasts that ask these questions, question authority. And anyone who wants to, it's a sociopath that wants to censor it. Remember that your president the other day was asked the question and he called less, uh, what's his name? Lester Holt, a wise guy for asking a question. And, you know, what are you, just a wise answer, guy. You answer the question. You work for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I'm getting angry. <laughs> Don't get angry. All right. You work for me. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. This, right. this is what I was talking about. The relationships. I thought it was a great question. Uh, Kelly suspect flattery. So number five, uh, compliments are lovely especially when they are sincere. In contrast, flattery is extreme and appeals to our ego in unrealistic ways. It is the material of counterfeit charm and nearly always involves an intent to manipulate. So Sean, be- your, your Pinocchio metaphor was amazing. You are really, 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 really smart. I knew you'd come to Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Number six. If necessary, redefine your concept of respect. So too often, uh, we mistake fear for respect. And uh, the more fearful we are of someone, the more we view him or her as deserving as our our respect. So in some ways, we have to be able to accept that a person person in power may have some uh, ability to control us or hurt us or in some particular way. And and if you're going to question authority you have to be willing to kind of accept that that anxiety goes. I see those go hand in hand. Yeah. You know, the authority might have more information than me. They're letting me know these things to protect me. I'm afraid of what he may know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do not join the game. 
Intrigue is a sociopath's tool. Resist the temptation to com, uh, compete with a seductive sociopath to outsmart him or her, psychoanalyze, or even banter with him. In addition to reducing yourself to his or her level, you could be distracting yourself from what is really important, which is to protect yourself. Uh, number eight, the best way to protect yourself from a sociopath is to avoid him, to refuse any kind of contact or communication. So trust your gut, right? And gain distance. Question your tendency to pity too easily. That's interesting. Um, pity is another socially valuable response. Sociopaths going to be able to, you know, play off that. To manipulate you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, number 10. Uh, do not try to redeem the unredeemable. And you see this in relationships. How many times do I see someone in, inside me who feels broken thinking they could have fixed him or fixed her? You know, that's, that's, uh, that's problematic. Uh, defend your psyche. Do not allow someone without conscience or even a string of such people to convince you that humanity is a failure. Most human beings do possess conscience. So when we talk about one out of 25, we're talking about 4%. Most human beings are able to love. That 4%, um, I, I think your book references it, but I saw like ranges of percentage of where those that could lie. So if it's 1 in 25, that's probably at the high end. How do we know? We don't know. Yeah, I was going to say. There's your positive intention to everything. <laughs> it's not that bad. What if, what if my anxiety has creeped up? <laughs> I mean, what if it's, at, what if it's actually worse? If you look at, and again, look at the prison system. How many people are in there with that are... They're, they're, sociopathic you know mm -hmm. definitely so. higher indexed on that side or indice no doubt uh 13 living well is the best revenge um 13 ways to protect yourself but i think what we we step out here is there's a, there's a couple things you have to you know swallow that bitter pill and accept that those people exist you have to really do trust your gut um use your deductive reasoning Listen, in relationships, um, be very mindful of the love bombing. You know, that type, of, that type of attention and flattery, although it feels good, it's unrealistic. You want somebody to love you for who you are with all your flaws. And, uh, the, you know, the one thing about attention to a, a appearance is that uh, one thing that happens is that, uh, you know, we grow old. You know, we, we change. And if you're going to have a healthy, strong relationship, you, you, you're not going to fall in love with that person's outward appearance because the world is full of, uh, of beautiful people. You have to fall in love with who they are as a person and, and who you grow with, right? That's that attachment. So you become attached to that person because you, you share life together. You might share children together. While the sociopath doesn't have that, that same kind of a, an emotional attachment or connection, not even to a child. So the child is only something that can serve them. You make them look good or, they, or you provide them something in life, some form of power. And that's what the relationship is. They might stay in a marriage. Mostly they're having uh, a lot of affairs. And, um, and again, that's to serve their own short-term sexual gratification, those animal-like instincts. And if, if you're getting that type of attention, uh, remember, there's, especially if you're prone to having like an affair or to receive that type of attention, that's another thing we see about victims, victims of the affair. Remember, they're doing that to their own partner or their own family. That should give you some indication about, about that individual's um, kind of moral compass. 
right? Because he's he is harming other people to give you that attention. And then we can transition into another topic, which I think is important, which would be if the sociopaths are not in jail, well, then what jobs and where are they? And is it a good possibility that they will be in high profile jobs, things like government um, leadership roles, things like that, only because of that lack of emotion in order to get, you know, to a certain point. So one of the arguments or one of the questions I would say is, if we're, if we're all emotional, um, which makes us human, it makes us good, and we're, we embrace our emotions, but, but don't, don't those emotions kind of put us on the losing team then if we're going to try to go up to this level of success, you know, and you want to go out there and get it, um, can emotions actually restrict you from that? So are sociopaths more prone to, to going up that ladder and, and taking leadership roles? Well, um, sociopaths are on the spectrum, right? So um, let's talk. There, was a, there used to be a local morning show uh, that would have this segment called Crooks Are Stupid. And then they would, <laughs> they would play all these, uh, these, these criminals who got arrested for doing stupid things, right? So they're on that, that spectrum of intelligence. But your point's well taken. There's an evolutionary advantage. So if you're really smart, and you lack conscience, remorse, or guilt, everything's to serve power. So you are going to be prone to certain positions in society. It's like the game Survivor. I mean, we're intrigued by like something like the Survivor because you have to make these alliances, right? And you're go- in order for you to finally win, and it's an interesting kind of game of, of human evolution. Do you Are you going to get yourself to the top by... Um, aligning with a larger group of people or are you going to be are you going to be the final one standing because you're able to manipulate multiple groups it's always like one second what usually happens is someone who has to serve the group initially and then uses that other that cunning and that ability to be able to uh, betray others so i always think about it in terms of politics right how i don't trust politicians because of what it takes to be able to achieve that role in American society. That is a, a need for attention and power at a level that most of us are unable to connect with. Right. The amount of financial resources, the alignments you have to make with people in order to even get in that position in the first place, and then the skills that you have to have in order to connect with everyday people. You know, Bill Clinton... They talk about his charm, right? Correct. But then look at the uh, psychopathy test, you know, the the multiple affairs. Glib and superficial. Glib, superficial. It's, uh, you know, people will love that guy and and even identify him as a, uh, a, a great American president because of quote-unquote ability to kind of connect with mm-hmm. people. But look at that. Glibness, superficial charm, your ego pathological lying, uh, the lack of remorse. I do not have sexual relations with that woman. Oh, and he was very defiant on that, in that uh, camera. You have to be callous to be a politician. Absolutely callous. History of promiscuous sexual relations, um, irresponsibly behavior. You know, if, if Hillary Clinton didn't stay with him, how many you know, marital relationships might he be in? Um, failure to accept responsibility. Many different you know, offenses. So listen, you are prone to, um, to being manipulated by the, the politician. Why do so many people 
not want to, do you think, I not want to question that authority though? Shouldn't we all be like educated enough to say, look, I get it. You're my politician. This is your job, but your job is to listen to me and my job is to question you. I'm not seeing that. Well, maybe there's a bit of a trend now because of podcasts like Rogan and because the people are getting the news elsewhere. But for a long time, it was as if I'm just going to listen. I have to listen. Why are we there? Why aren't people waking up and saying, I don't have to listen. As a matter of fact, there are multiple scientists all over the world that I can Mm. listen to. I don't just have to listen to the scientists that you're telling me to because you could be a sociopath. You could be sitting there trying to manipulate me for your own benefit. Why aren't there more of those questions, do you think? The role of fear. So it's back to our uh, biological ability to experience emotions. So if this is on a spectrum, if one end of the spectrum is person to not feel love, compassion, empathy, um, guilt, What's the other end of the, the spectrum? Your, uh, your propensity to experience all those emotions rather strong. So in a time where there is a crisis and you feel fear or they're manipulating you like saying things that are deliberate, like you, uh, you, can, hurt your, you can kill your grandparents, that was the manipulator. Uh, that was easy deductive reasoning for me. That is provoking that other end. And then they feel guilt. And then that authority bias comes into play. So for the first time in human history that we know of, uh, you cannot be sick, not have any symptoms, but now your fear is provoked that what if you're asymptomatic and you're out in public or you don't have a mask on, then you could pass it to somebody and you're responsible. So the manipulator, the sociopath, provokes those emotions purposely in the individual who's not, which is most of us. And that's why you have to be on guard to this. That's why you have to be on guard to it in the medical establishment, um, our government, or position, or people who are in positions of influence or power because it is not easy to achieve a position of influence and power if you're one of the 96% who experience guilt, have a strong moral code, and have that, that conscience. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.